Welcome to If Not Us. I'm your host, Sarah Ackerman. To wrap up our series on uniquely American problems, I sat down with Philip Rutherford, Chief Operating Officer with Faces and Voices of Recovery. We talk about addiction and recovery and what that looks like in the United States, who gets it right, and why language around recovery matters. I hope you enjoy. So, Phil, how did you get involved in the world of recovery? Uh, well, it wasn't a career choice. Uh, my own personal life experience landed me on the shores of recovery. And I think that probably, I would say unwillingly, right? I don't, I don't know that anyone wakes up uh, or starts off in third grade and says, hey, what I want to do with my life is experience substance use disorder in a very meaningful way. And then find recovery. So number one, I didn't know what substance use disorder was. I also didn't know what recovery was. But my life experience kind of brought me to that point, And I was blessed with the opportunity to find recovery. And it's been probably the defining characteristic or criteria of my life. I'm lucky enough, I think, to do or pursue helping people in recovery in the workplace. And I think that's the, that's the blessing part. There are plenty of people out there living their lives, doing the right thing, living in recovery, I get to double dip. I get to yeah. uh, help other people find recovery in the workplace. That's awesome. And that, what led you to find Faces and Voices? Uh, well, I so most of my career was private sector. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked technology, sort of a dot-com baby. And I was, that was going along uh, with with some fits and starts. Uh, I mentioned the substance use disorder that, that interferes with uh, at least meaningful job completion, and uh, I did. I, I reached a point where I, I needed some treatment. I got that, and then I got some more treatment, <laughs> and then uh, ultimately I found I found recovery. And I kept trying to do sort of the same work that I had been doing years before. And I found that that didn't really work for me. I wasn't, I found that I was much more happy in my mutual aid groups and, and kind of working with people in the community than I was in the workplace. So I started volunteering for a couple of nonprofits and found my way into the peer recovery world, mm -hmm. which is where I, I worked at a recovery community organization in Minnesota, and that's how I was introduced to Faces and Voices. Wonderful. So what is something that you wish more people knew about recovery in America and the journey people go through? Just one thing? All the things. Because I got like 20. Okay. <laughs> okay. All the things. We're going to be here a while. Now, I, if there is a main thing, it's that recovery is possible. And there are, there are so many people out there that are living a life of recovery to good purpose. I think one of the fallacies of, and this is probably associated with stigma, but one of the fallacies associated with getting well from substance use disorder is that you're not supposed to talk about it. And, and I, early on, I was kind of given that same information. But I don't know, I'm very, these days I'm very public about my recovery and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As a matter of fact, if I don't tell people that recovery is possible, how's anybody going to know? Right. Right. How do people yeah. get that message that... That it works, and and recovery is re recovery. Like I said, it's the it's defining criteria for my life. So it's improved just about every aspect of my life. It's improved my relationship with my family, with my wife, with my kids, 
with uh, just about just about every aspect of my life has been improved by my relationship uh, with recovery. And it's not just, I think, so another thing, another takeaway for people is that the recovery process is not just about the absence of substance use. Uh, I think in this country specifically, we have a really weird obsession with whether or not people are using substances. And I understand that obviously people do terrible things when they're under the influence of alcohol, they crash cars, there's overdose, there are all these things. Mm -hmm. However, once that is done, there's still, a person still has to live their life, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the recovery process is more about, it's not just about cessation of substance use or changing the way your relationship with substances. It's really more about how you live your life. And I think that's the that's the that's the place where where my 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 life has gotten a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. What are the barriers getting in the way for people who want access to recovery support? Um, the, the similar barriers to any other kind of healthcare issue, right? So there are mm-hmm. systemic and structural barriers that keep people out of healthcare. I live in Minnesota, so we have had Medicaid expansion since it was available. So it's fairly. I wouldn't say easy, but it is possible for someone in Minnesota to determine they have a problem with substances and ask for help and get that help regardless of their income threshold. There are still states in America where that's not possible. Mm-hmm. States that didn't take Medicaid expansion, well, there's no easy pathway to getting treatment. I work in the peer recovery space, so one of the neat things about peer recovery is it doesn't typically cost money. It doesn't typically cost the end user or the person requesting peer recovery. It doesn't cost them money. So people can walk into a recovery community organization, for example, and and get help. So I think that that, that's one barrier, just basic, the same barriers that exist for other things. I think another giant barrier is stigma Mm -hmm. and people's take on what substance use disorder actually is in sort of community at large, it's perce- it's not always perceived as a health condition. It is sometimes perceived as a willpower issue or as a moral failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're getting better with that. We're getting better based on some good education work and just good community understanding. We're getting better at, at not viewing it that way. But there's still, there's still pockets of people that believe that the reason that people go out and ruin their lives is because they're, they're just weak-willed or they've made a moral choice, yeah. <laughs> for example, to to ruin everything about their life, which is it, it, on, on logical inspection that doesn't really hold up. Most people don't ruin their life and make everyone they know mad at them because they want to. Right. And it's so different than if there's a, a stigma of like a moral failing, like like just internal barriers to wanting to seek help of like, oh, I have uh, chosen this and I'm a bad person and all this versus like I have a disease and this is something that like if you broke your arm, you're not going to feel bad about it and like have a a moral quandary of going to the doctor and seeking help. Shifting that I think goes a long way. Correct. And, And similarly with that broken arm, when you go to an emergency room and say, hey, my arm is broken, you're met with compassion mm-hmm. and care. And someone says, okay, what's that? Your arm's broken? Okay, does this hurt? And yes, okay, let's see if we can do something about your pain. Let's see if we can do something about getting it fixed. At a minimum, you're at least treated with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the symptoms of substance use disorder are not as pretty. 
uh, given. I, I'm not. I'm not looking through rose-tinted glasses. The symptoms of substance use disorder do not look like a broken arm, but a lot of times people are met with disdain and uh, sometimes hostility for having that health condition. Yeah. And and that's that's external. The there, there's internal uh, something that that comes up from time to time is the subject of relapse. There's internal bias and stigma around substance use disorder as well. And so I think it's not just about me pointing the finger at the external broader community about mm-hmm. stigma within the recovery community as well. There sometimes we aren't as forgiving of people when they, when they have a recurrence of symptoms. Mm-hmm. You use the term relapse and I want to talk about words because I know that words in this space, just in a lot of spaces too, but specifically in this space, like hold a lot of meaning and like how the words cause additional stigma so you used the term relapse, but you also said that, um, what was the, the better, the... Yeah, I don't, and yeah, I don't use the term relapse, because I used it in this context just to, uh, mostly to get it out there, right. but um, we use terms like recurrence of symptoms or return to use, because, uh, largely because of the stigma associated with the word relapse. Now, yeah. the funny thing about that is, in, in other healthcare places, uh, like when someone has hypertension, the medical community does use a term like this person's had a relapse into a a hypertensive episode. That is not stigmatized. Mm -hmm. That's not people, the usual usual response to that is, okay, do we need a medication change? Um, Do we need a diet change? Do we need exercise? What are the things that we need to do to help treat this relapse of the hypertensive episode? Whereas in the SUD space, when someone says the word relapse, like, oh, they failed. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, you know, they must not have been, they must not have been doing it right. They must not. And the thing is, with especially with some of the behavioral based health conditions, like hypertension can be behaviorally based. Mm-hmm. Even, even cancer can be based on use of, of tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of those cases, rarely do people say, well, you know what, you, you got that cancer thing. So you, and, and you, and you, you, you have cancer again. So you failed and, and <laughs> we're going to have to stop giving you treatment for it. That just doesn't happen. Right? No, that is such a wonderful analogy too, of something that is so far outside of your control and is scary and is not anything that anyone would want or desire in life. Like this is not something that people would be like, Oh yeah, cancer, sign me up. Um, that seems fun. I'll take two. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, the idea of someone being turned away for, well, you've relapsed. So um, it's back. And, uh, you know, you didn't do one of these things correctly. Um, so we're going to, we're just going to go ahead and say bye. That's not how we want to live as humans. No. I think another thing that happens too is that we have this sort of absolute, very, very binary thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So it can be both things, right? It can be that a person with SUD does not do the things that they need to do to keep themselves in in a recovery positive space and they experience a return to symptoms possibly as a result of that possibly as a result of the of just the the sort of course of illness mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve care and that doesn't mean that they don't deserve the same opportunity to recover as the next person um there's a gentleman named John Kelly who's at the uh, Recovery Research Institute out of Harvard that has done a lot of research specifically on people attempting to get recovery, uh, working with recovery community centers and recovery community organizations, which we may get to that. Mm -hmm. 
But his research says that on average, it takes about seven years of attempts for a person to achieve one year of remission. So by definition, if it takes seven years to achieve one year of problem-free living, by definition, there are going to be some setbacks. Right. That's the neat, that, that's what that means. That, mean, that means that, that there are going to be some returns to use. There are going to be some recurrences of symptoms. Yeah. Those symptoms may or may not include a, a, a return to actually using the substance. But we need to have room for that. Just like there's room for a recurrence of symptoms with cancer, recurrence of symptoms with diabetes, hypertension, all the other chronic illnesses have a very similar pattern. In fact, they're not that different from substance use disorder. But that doesn't sell much on the evening news if you tell that story. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we, uh, there's another episode that we talk about kind of like the, like speaking of news and like what actually sells. And so like how, yeah. like we're not talking about the important things uh, or we're not talking about the important things in a way that is like logical and level-headed. Instead, it is whatever is going to get the most viewership and clicks and anything. And it's leading to a lot of harm, whether that is intentional, unintentional, or just negligent for capital gains, which is very unfortunate. So you've mentioned RCOs. What are they? What do they do? And how do, what kind of space do they serve in someone's recovery journey? So uh, an RCO is a recovery community organization, which is a community-based organization that does one or more of the following three things, advocacy, community education, or direct peer support. The, in the advocacy space, these are people with lived experience talking to policymakers or stakeholders, both at the local, state, and federal level. Mm-hmm. Community education would be people with lived experience working with the community to give them education about recovery resources, the availability of resources, just general information about community recovery. And then direct peer service are people with lived experience working with other people with substance use disorder, attempting to find a pathway to recovery. Mm -hmm. And that can take a lot of different forms. That can be as simple as uh, referral services to other resources. That can be help with career. That can be help with uh, finding stable housing. That That can be a variety of different things. But you'll notice in all three of those examples, I mentioned the word lived experience. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the centerpiece of the recovery community organization is people with lived experience and recovery. And all of those things sort of operate out of that community, that community base. So these are not, there's not like private equity placing these organizations around the country. These are, um, these are organizations where it is a, the, the, the mission is, is very heart driven yeah. and they're, they're typically smaller there's some that are that are larger, but for the most part, these are small community-based places where people go to get well. And if, if if everyone involved in that space is someone with lived experience, that also, to your point earlier, of like taking the stigma away of talking about it, you have to be at least acknowledging it if you're going to be working in that space. Yep, and and I will I will make a small correction to that. It, not every single person in that space is someone with lived experience. Mm-hmm. We have a, a there's a, a a large community of allies that that help in this work, mm-hmm. and there's no there, there's no friction there between people with lived experience and allies. Sometimes that that comes up, and I I don't know if this is a, a shortcoming of people with substance use disorder, but we we like to hear about it from people that have been there. Yeah, right, and we like to like when we're saying hey. How do I fix this uh, 
dumpster fire that I've created, uh, we like to hear from someone that's that's maybe uh, put out their own dumpster fire. So yeah, I I think that is a very um, good and realistic like source of information. Like you're not going to want to hear it from somebody who's never experienced those hardships, and they're just like, "Hey, you'll be fine." Like that that carries no weight. So that's wonderful. Yep, and I think one one other thing I'll add on the on just on the so there there are there are places for this work, um, and I think one of the key differences between the peer setup and the sort of clinical healthcare because clinical healthcare is very important. Mm-hmm. The clinician observes the patient, makes recommendations about the treatment course for the patient, and then observes the progress of the patient. So there is a there is a there is a power differential between the clinician and the patient. Peer seeks to level that out, mm-hmm. right? And there, of course, humans, people that are in need of help and people that have help, there's always a little bit of a power differential, but peer seeks to level that playing field and say, hey, I don't know how to fix you, but here's how, uh, here's how I got better. Yeah. And if you want some of that, I can tell you, and that's, that's kind of the, that's the vibe. Yeah. My kids say that a lot, the vibe. <laughs> no, it's the vibe. How has COVID-19 impacted the recovery space? Uh, terribly. Yeah. Uh, not so good. We, there's a gentleman named Johan Hari that says that connection is, is really important for mm-hmm. us. And COVID interfered with that. So it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword. So on one hand, it disrupted a lot of person-to-person contact. It also blossomed Zoom and mm-hmm. all the other uh, online meeting places that exist, uh, but I would say on the on the whole, it disrupted more than it created those uh, those those opportunities. What we found, at least in our in our space, were that the people that were newer did not fare as well. People that were sort of established in their recovery found those those ways and means to connect with their with their recovery contacts, mm-hmm. but it decimated the new folks. Yeah. So we're just now kind of starting to see people uh, show up again. And, and there there are some places that didn't really ever stop <laughs> having in-person stuff, but it was it was not good. So bad is my answer to that question. If community is the, the cornerstone of what fosters support, not having that community is hard. And then trying to foster community just on a screen is we've done a decent job, but it's so different than being in person and um, like actually physically seeing people and being able to like give them a hug or like shake their hand or just like be in their presence, kind of turning a little bit, but how do current policies harm people seeking recovery? Like felony drug offenses, losing the rights to vote, losing parental rights. Like what all does that look like? Because it's not just substance use disorder It and like trying to manage that. It, there's a lot of other ways that people can be impacted. Yeah. The, so the war on drugs failed. Uh, it was actually a war on black, indigenous, people of color, and poor people. Mm-hmm. That didn't work terribly well. So, well, I'll just say this. The occurrence of substance use disorder in the 70s is similar to the occurrence of substance use disorder now. Mm-hmm. And we've had multiple iterations of we're on drugs. We're going to crack down on the criminals. We're going to get these drugs out. We're going to stop them from coming in the borders, blah, 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 blah. Things are possibly, well, we're, we're losing more people to overdose now than we ever have. So whatever we're doing is not working. And the harm that it, that it causes, I believe, is that it is 
it is having a chilling effect on people seeking help. And I know people toss out Portugal as a an example a lot, but they there there really has been some good work around drug policy in Portugal. And I think the common misconception that people have about about drug legalization is that um, full full legalization means that you'll walk into a Seven Eleven and pick up some heroin. That's actually not that's not what's happening in Portugal right now. There's there I think the best example I've heard of that is like in America you can have a dog, you can own a dog, a monkey, or a lion, but there are different rules about all three of those things and the way that the sort of rights that you have and how you go about owning those three different animals are different, right? Uh, similarly in Portugal. Um, yes, you can go buy a beer at the store, but if you want to, if you choose to use heroin, you have to go to a government-approved center, and it is distributed that way. And, and those centers actually have a a number of people that attend them that end up stopping using because they're presented with other opportunities at those centers. So, so we're we're doing it completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing we're doing the drug policy completely wrong. And the, the, the parent, the parental rights thing, we could have a whole show on that. I'm, I'm not fully qualified to talk about it, but it's, it's what we do to women at a time when it's very important for them to have as much support as possible is mm-hmm. uh, probably also criminal. Yeah. I'm getting on a soapbox now. Let me kick that out from under me. And No, by all means, stay on it. That's the whole point. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, the, so our, 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 our drug policy is, is, uh, it's it's codified on the notion, on a very patriarchal notion, that if we restrict people's access to drugs and we make the punishment great enough that people will stop and they won't use them, the problem is people don't care about that. And it, it, there, there's no evidence, we don't have any evidence that supports that that will work. Uh, you mentioned Portugal being like a drug policies that are working. Is there, has anyone else kind of taken that direction or are they the leader in this space right now? Most of Western Europe has has modeled, uh, with the exception, the, the UK and Scotland are outliers, mm-hmm. but Denmark, Sweden, mo- most of those uh, modern Western democracies have done something similar around decriminalization or legalization, and they, they're they not seeing anywhere near the kind of the death and destruction that we're seeing here. Yeah. And there, there are other factors, you know, I mean, American culture is a little bit different, but but they're just they're they're not seeing I, I mean Portugal was seeing the kind of problems that we're seeing today, and within about three years, their problems basically evaporated after this wow. significant change. Um, what they did was they engaged some scientists in changing their policy they went to they went to science and data and said hey what if we what 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 can we do to affect our policy and the scientists did some study and they said, "What if you did this?" based on our study, rather than demagoguing and, you know, creating other groups and all that stuff. So, and the scientists look like they were uh, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what the, that's what the results are. And I mean, it's been a while since they've done this too. This isn't a, this wasn't like last week. It's been, I want to say they started in like 2002 or something. Mm -hmm. They also didn't have the same kind of political setup that we have here. So it's, uh, one thing that we're really supportive of at Faces and Voices is harm reduction. I don't even know if I like that term. I, I, I just I like multiple pathways to recovery, so people mm-hmm. find recovery however they want to. But those types of approaches that are sort of person-centered and supportive of the individual, the data says that they work better 
than approaches that are punitive and and substance centered, right? Where you better stop, you're bad. I don't want to say those words, but yeah, you know the words I'm thinking of. The whole theme of this entire season is uh, uniquely American problems. And I know we're not the only ones that are in this space, but when you see other countries that are able to do this better, it is always a little infuriating to be like, or we could follow that model. And it's like, no, we're going to instead just continue down this path that isn't working, but, and just hope. Yeah. But it, you know, it feels, it feels better. And, and we, we, we have to, you know, we got to continue to feed the beast, right? We have to yeah. feed the political beast that, uh, that we got. So I'm not in support of that, by the way. No, uh, I completely understand that. So what are the policies either on like the state or federal level that faces and voices are currently advocating for? Well, at a federal level, the first thing that comes to mind is there is a, a thing called a set aside. Mm -hmm. And a set aside is, and there, there's already one in place for uh, treatment. So if you remember at the beginning, we talked about Medicaid expansion and people being able to get treatment in states where there was Medicaid expansion. The federal government sets aside a certain portion of what's called the substance abuse block grant. They set aside a portion of that for treatment mm -hmm. and a portion of that for prevention, right? Because those are both very important things. We have been advocating the past couple of years for a set aside for specifically for recovery, for activities that are associated with recovery. Now, you would think that there would already be such a thing, but there's not. And President Biden was the first American president to to actually target that and put that as a recommendation in his budget. And it, it got there. We almost got to the finish line uh, last session, but it didn't happen. So we're, continu we're continuing to advocate for that because what it does, I mentioned that these were small community-based organizations. That's nice, but if you really want scale, you need infrastructure and reliable income. The the set aside is something that would help us build a more reliable and dependable infrastructure. And I have these conversations with, uh, I have friends all across the political spectrum. When I have these conversations, sometimes I get the pushback that, well, you know, where the, that's, the government's building an industry. And it's that's true. It is. Mm -hmm. Just like it did with community mental health centers in the 80s, in the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. The same, they, the, the same exact thing was done. They, they started targeting funds at... Uh, community mental health centers because they understood after deinstitutionalization where in the 70s where they stopped allowing people to just be tossed into mental institutions for the rest of their lives, they said, hey, it's not equitable. We want people to be out in the community. The federal government invested billions in building up this community infrastructure. Um, the set-aside would do that on a much smaller scale, but it would allow people to to get at recovery resources, especially in places where the, the SABG set aside is not linked to Medicaid specifically. It would go to every state. So every state would be able to build some recovery infrastructure. That would be wonderful, especially for the states that are hesitant for or to take a Medicaid expansion. Yep. And there, there, are, there, are, there are other stuff, but that's, that's a big one. So we kind of uh, have danced around this a little bit throughout this episode, but what is the future that Faces and Voices is trying to create? So we're trying to create a world where people have access to recovery resources in every community. So one of the things that we we sponsor a thing called National well we changed the name to just Recovery Month, but National it used to be called National Recovery Month. Every September all around the country people celebrate recovery. And so every every person 
every neighborhood, every community, everyone should have access to recovery resources. And we, and we think that our, our, our vision is that no matter where you are, you could get access to, to help for this problem. And we, we think that if there is enough infrastructure built, we can normalize this conversation. We can normalize the conversation around substance use disorder and where people won't be so uh, reluctant to seek help. Everybody knows someone. Everybody has someone in their in their life orbit that has this has touched, right? Yeah. It's every, everybody's got someone in somewhere in their sphere of influence where substance use disorder has touched them. Um, I'll say this one last thing on the NRA, and I, I know it's a terrible comparison, but I actually aspire to their level of advocacy because when right. you ask an NRA member why why they give money to the NRA or why they support the NRA. It's because the NRA is out there protecting their gun rights 24 mm-hmm. seven. One of the things I'm pushing for faces and voices is that we're out there protecting people's recovery rights or the right to have access to recovery 24 seven. Like I, yeah. there now we don't have millions of millions of dollars to, to push that message, but that sort of uncompromising stance um, mm-hmm. on recovery rights is kind of, where, that's where we're trying to, where we're trying to go. They are wild and terrifying. Yes, I know. I know. Yeah. If listeners are motivated to help in this space and they want to see positive change in their community, what's something that they can do? Uh, so one quick thing they could do is go to facesandvoices.org uh, and join us, get on our mailing list. Um, we're on, we're on the, I'm, I'm not a social media wizard, but we're on Facebook, Insta, I won't say there's another social media place that we're on. I don't know how long we'll be on that one, but that, <laughs> speaking uh, of dumpster fires, yes, uh, yeah. dumpster fires. <laughs> who knows how long that platform's even just going to be in existence though. So who knows? We might be on Mastodon next week, but, um, right. but so that's, that's big picture. That's how you could get in, get kind of plugged in with us. And, mm-hmm. but, but just in your community, maybe look up recovery community organization, do a Google search. Google will, will go to your, will go to your geo, your, your geographic location and look for recovery community organizations. But the reason I, I said come to us first is because we, well, we have a, a group inside of us called the Association of Recovery Community Organizations. Mm-hmm. Not that clever, but that's the name of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about 175 of these around the country. And so we could pro- possibly do some steering and, and get you to the right place. Yeah. Awesome. So in your journey as someone who has uh, found this career, not necessarily in the most direct path. Nope. What is something that you wish you would have known before you got started? Oh my gosh. Um, I wish I would have known the scope of the lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll explain that because I know it's kind of vague, but being a person in recovery, you kind of know what you know, right? Like I knew, I knew that I had substance use disorder. I knew I needed help. A lot of people knew I needed help before I did, right? And they they said, "Hey, you, you know, you should probably get some help for that." So I got that, and I got involved. I got plugged into a recovery community, and and I was doing the thing, but I had no idea. And so, so I just kind of I, I found this this wonderful gift, right? And and it was so it it still is. It's so precious to me, but I didn't know how little the outside world knew about it. And had I known sooner, I would have been screaming from the rooftops a long time ago. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, it probably took me, it probably took me 10 years to really get my sea legs under me and start telling people about how good recovery is and how important it is for the, 
for the community to know about it and how how central a role people in recovery can be in communities. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I wish I what I would have known sooner. Yeah. So how do you like uh, the saying is you can't pour from an empty cup? Uh, like this work is it can be taxing. So how do you fill your cup and like find a work life balance while living and working in this space? So there's a famous experiment called Rat Park. And in Rat Park, uh, they took some rats. And yes, I'm calling myself a rat. They took some rats and they allowed them or provided an environment where they could become addicted to substances. Mm-hmm. And it's like the previous, the, the, the earlier rat experiments where you get the rat addicted to cocaine and he'll continue taking the cocaine until he dies. But they never introduced community to that experiment. So what what they did in Rat Park was they got the rat addicted to that. They got him addicted to multiple substances. And they offered them the substances. But they also offered pro-social rat activities. Now, I have no idea what pro-social rat activities are. I don't know if it's like rat basketball. I don't know if it's rat golf. I don't don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But they offered pro-social activities. And an overwhelming majority of them, of the rats chose the pro-social activities rather than the substances. Without any punishment, there was, no, there was no punishment, there was no negative consequence. The rat could have easily gone and taken the substance again. The rats chose the pro-social activities. Mm-hmm. So what I do to fill my cup is I hang out with my rats. I got my rats. We go, mm-hmm. we go on trips. We go. I had a, a good friend of mine who was getting married. We took him to Vegas. We had a great substance-free time. Well, not, I mean, it was a lot of caffeine involved, but we, we had a... a, a <laughs> illicit substance-free time in Vegas. And I mean, we go, we, 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 we do our thing, right? We live just like anyone else would, but it's, there's something about that shared experience that we have um, that, that fills me and it, and it, it, uh, it sustains me. Do they know, do we, like, does everyone call each other rats or is that just like uh, your term of endearment for them? We talk about we talk about rat time. Oh, that's awesome! The gathering of the rats. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That's a community even in and of itself of just like yes, these are my rat friends, and everyone knows, and that is fantastic. Yep. Is there anything like? Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to other aspiring change makers and advocates as they kind of pursue their journey in trying to make the world a better place? Yes, just a, a word of uh, encouragement and compassion and like I think something about this work is it, it can be it can be a bit discouraging from time to time when you run across someone that doesn't understand or you know people are kind of stuck in their own doing their own thing but um like find your cheerleaders find there there most of us have cheerleaders somewhere you don't you don't you don't get to the change maker and advocate space without having a whole bench full of cheerleaders Find them and listen to them. Believe what they're saying because you're 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 great. And I I, I have a, a a good team of cheerleaders. And and sometimes it's hard for me to for them to get through all the <laughs> foolishness in my head. But hopefully I you know I, I listen. I'm like okay, right, that's right. I, I I'm, I'm I'm okay. Yeah. So it's it's really important to to not be so hard on yourself and just and just kind of take when you get those positive pieces of feedback to take them to heart and hold on to them. Amazing. Well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate your time today. This has been such a educational and like frustrating, but in the good kind of way, kind of talk. So thank you. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm.
Thank you to our guest, Philip Rutherford, and the team at Faces and Voices of Recovery. Check out the show notes for all their social links, and please let us know if you have a pod of rat friends. I also want to say thanks to our editor, Shay Dominguez, and our producing organization, Media Cause, a digital marketing agency specializing in moving missions forward for nonprofits and cause-based organizations. See their impact at mediacause.org. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and drop by ifnotus.tv if you have suggestions on guests or topics we should cover. Until next time, remember, change belongs to everyone. Mm-hmm.